Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Nicholas Fogg describes life at the court of the Great Mogul, his campaigns, his foibles, and his lasting impact on the history of India. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the last of our summer gulp lectures.、Um, the 16th century was extraordinary in both the art and the dynasties that it produced. You have Suleiman the Magnificent in Turkey,、um, and obviously the Renaissance in Italy. But perhaps no dynasty was quite as glittering as that of the Mughals. And we have Nicholas Fogg to tell us all about it. He is a fellow of Queen's University in Ontario and a former consultant to the Harvard University School of Government, an accredited freelance with the Times and the Guardian. He's lectured in the Distinguished Writers series at the Shakespeare Festival at Stratford, Ontario. His most recent book, *A Town at War*, was published by the History Press in April 2008. His next one will deal with the astonishing impact of the Jesuit mission to the East, including the court of Akbar, who's the man you're going to hear about today,、uh, in the 16th century. His 65,000-word paper, *Optimism at, at, with the Facts*. On the prospects for peace in historic Palestine, was published in January. Nick founded the Marlborough International Jazz Festival and is mayor of that historic borough. So you are in、oh, excellent hands. You say that at the end, not at the beginning. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I was just commenting on the poster up there. Next year, your seat will be gone. It's probably aimed at.、Um, Members of Parliament who've been overzealous on, on expenses, I should think.、Um, it, there's nothing new under the sun, is the old cliche. And、uh, I'm talking tonight about fatwas,、um, invasions of Afghanistan, and、uh, Sharia law, amongst other things. They all have a very、uh, contemporary note to them. In September 1579, the Mughal Emperor Akbar. Sent an ambassador called Abdullah to the Portuguese colony of Goa. He was received cordially by the viceroy and presented Akbar's request that two learned men be sent to his court at Fatehpur Sikri. They were to bring with them the chief books of the law and the gospel. Akbar promised to receive them with every possible honour. Yalad ul-Din Muhammad Akbar. Was the greatest ruler in India, if not Asia, or possibly, arguably, the world. He had been raised far from the splendours of the court, however, in the rugged country of Afghanistan, where he had learnt to f- hunt and fight, but never to read or write. He never learnt to read or write in his entire life. Despite this, he was as knowledgeable as the most learned of his scholars, having books read to him by his courtiers. He was a great patron. Of architecture, art, and literature, his court was rich in culture as well as in wealth. He was familiar with the practical aspects of artistic creativity, himself relishing and designing and crafting beautiful Persian carpets. He was only 13 years old when he succeeded Homayam, his father, as Mughal emperor in 1556. <coughs> he proved as ruthless a, a ruler as his forebears. Within weeks of his accession, he personally beheaded the Hindu general Huim, who had been captured in battle. When the city of Chatur in Gujarat was taken in 1567, according to Abdul Fazl, his vizier, 
some 30,000 Rajput prisoners were put to death. Um, but uh, that, that may have just been to impress other people, this figure was given out. <laughs> a monarch should ever be on conquest, he declared. Otherwise, his enemies rise up in arms against him. I think, think we'd better have a look at him. Having, uh, can we, and here he is. There he is. And uh, we'll come back to his dress code, um, because it's, it's absolutely significant. You can see he's richly adorned in jewellery, silks, and he wears a turban in the Sikh style. Um, so there's a, there's a clue to the man, even in the way he dresses, because um, he, he wears a Sikh turban in, in honour of uh, his non-Islamic, some of his non-Islamic subjects, and contrary Contrary to the Quranic law, he, he dresses extremely richly. Um, the, the Quran says that people should not be ostentatious in their dress. Um, he himself is a, what we might call an icon. Um, he, he demonstrates his greatness and his splendor in, 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 his, in his lavish uh, dress. So why, why is he known as the great? I mean, great is not a title that's given away uh, all that easily to rulers. I mean, we have Pope Gregory the Great, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, yeah, and only one English king has ever been called the Great Alfred. So it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not an easily earned title. Well, he was a brilliant administrator of his vast empire. He was an absolute ruler, but he, he had the wit to delegate his powers very skillfully. He built great public works, including roads and canals, and devised fair and efficient methods of taxation. He sought to be ironic uh, towards all his subjects. He ended the pilgrimage taxes on Hindus and the hated Jazira poll tax on non-Muslims, in contradiction of the traditional ma mandate in Islam to tax non-believers. His policy of tolerance extended towards uh, his many wives, um, as well as Muslim women, he married Rajput princesses to reconcile this warrior people to his rule, and Hindu women for the same purpose. But the wives would have been obliged to convert to Islam. Akbar, however, encouraged them in their own religious practices. And indeed, he seems to have used his wives as a kind of ethnic think tank, you know, um, <laughs> giving, giving advice on how you deal with the subject peoples. They, they were... They were um, his advisors, and they were entitled to uh, issue decrees for Mins um, around the empire. So, and when he when he went off to war, he left his mother in charge of the domestic arrangements. So, although I don't think he was a women's liberationist, he actually um, empowered women, particularly the women who were very close to him. In 1575, he began a series of religious discussions in which Muslim sco scholars debated with rep representatives of other faiths in his Ibadat Kama, the house of worship which he had built. In 1579, he proclaimed himself the supreme ar arbiter of all religious issues. Although there can be no doubt about the genuineness of his interest in religion and his search for truth, it also represented a very practical political and social policy. As the Muslim re ruler of a majority of non-Muslims, an ironic approach to religion was part of his statecraft. And he, he built... Um, the great city of Fatapur Sikri. I'll, uh, I'll come back to that shortly. Um, so, uh, he sends off to Goa, the Portuguese colony, uh, the, the first uh, colony um, of the or European colony in Asia, um, which was a great thriving city. The Portuguese had established uh, a great trade through Goa. And um, 
as a result of his asking for Christian missionaries to come and visit him at his court, um, the Jesuits were sent. And I, um, June already mentioned that I'm doing work on uh, the incredible impact of the Jesuits in Asia in the 16th and early 17th centuries. Um, it was Matteo Ricci, a Jesuit missionary, who introduced Western science and astronomy um, to China. Um, here in India, Thomas Stevens, who's a fairly local lad to hear, you almost certainly never heard of him, but Thomas Stevens was a Jesuit who came from a place called Bushton, which is just very close to um, Lynham Air, Air Base now. He became um, a missionary in India, in Goa, and he translated the first, um, he, 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 he created the first dictionary of a nation language and published the first books. Um, printed books in, in, in uh, Asian language, and he wrote one of the great classics of Indian literature, the Christian Purana. Um, so this is the kind of impact, um, intellectual impact, that the Jesuits had in uh, Asia in the, in the late um, 16th century. But had uh, they possessed the gift of foresight, um, the Jesuit mission that went to see Akbar would have realised from the very style of the architecture of Fatapur Sikri when they arrived there, that the prime purpose of their mission to convert the emperor was unlikely to, to succeed. The place was an amalgam of influencers, reflecting Akbar's ultimate desire to create a synthetic religion. Islamic, Hindi, Jain, and even Christian styles were, were there. The effect was breathtaking. As they passed through the great gate, the dome and minarets of the Jani Majad, the royal mosque, which was one of the largest in India, soared above them. People carrying floral offerings were making their way to the Dorgan or tomb of Salim Christi. Um, this was the um, seer that had strongly influenced. He was a, a, a seer, a, a holy man, and he had actually um, he, he had actually influenced Bagbar greatly um, by his policies of religious tolerance to all all peoples. Um, it would appear that Akbar's Motivation for building the um, city of Fatapur Sikri was, um, was, was nothing more than the fact that um, this man who'd influenced himself um, had once been a hermit there. Perhaps he felt that the presence of the holy man, his tomb, would sanctify it. And he added the name Fatapur to that of Sikri, the city of victory, because he had just conducted this, his successful campaign against the Gujarats. Shayam Salim Chisti died in 1517. Akbar created a magnificent tomb on the site of, of, of where he had sat in meditation in his hermitage. It is one of the finest examples of marble work in India. The Jesuits must have been astonished by what they saw when they arrived in Fatapur in February 1580. The approach to the city was described by an English visitor, Ralph Fitch, who visited it five years later. Between Agra and Fatipur there are 12 miles, and all the way is a market of victuals and other things, as full as though a man was still in the town. There are many fine carts, and many, carved, many of them carved and gilded with gold, with two wheels that be drawn with two little balls, about the bigness of our great dogs in England. And they will run with any horse and carry two or three men. They are covered with silk or very fine cloth, and be used here as our coaches be in England." Hither is a great resort of merchants from Persia and out of India, and very much merchandise of silk and cloth and of precious stones, both rubies, diamonds, and pearls. So um, I think the second picture, you can see the Jesuits arrive at the court of Akbar. 
and um, he's, he's absolutely delighted to see them. He's heard of their learning. Um, there were three of them, actually. Uh, they were led by um, Ro Rodrigo Aquaviva, who's um, a nephew of the uh, um, head of the order, the Jesuit order. He, he's, he's actually now Saint Ro Rodrigo, Rodrigo um, Aquaviva because he was subsequently martyred in Goa. Um, and two other Je Je Jesuits, um, one of whom was a, a convert from Islam and therefore was, could act as a, an interpreter, and Father Antonio Monserrati, who, um, who was instructed to keep a journal of the, um, uh, of the journey, of the, of, of the um, em embassy to the court of Akbar. And that's why we know so much about Akbar and how, how the court actually operated. Like the great monarch he was, Akbar was available to his subjects. It is hard to exaggerate, wrote Father Antonio, how accessible he makes himself to all who wish to see him. Almost every day he created an opportunity for anyone who wished to see him, whether he were peasant or nobleman, to do so. He endeavours to show himself pleasant and affable rather than severe, and all who come to speak with him. It is very remarkable how great an effect this courtesy and affability has in attaching to him the minds of his subjects. Akbar, who was 38 years old, would have received the Jesuits in his house of private audience, the Diwan Khan Ilkar. And we've got a picture of that, I think, next. Or maybe, I think there's one before that. We've got Akbar and his elephant. There he is. He was a, he was a great hunter. And uh, he, he possessed a thousand elephants, and so he could only ride one at a time. Um, but there, there he is, um, shown um, in wonderful style on, on his uh, probably his favourite elephant. And we'll, we'll have a look at the uh, audience. Could the picture be moved to your right? Yes. Uh, or something well, I, even better, I could move to the left. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. There we are. Yeah. So, uh, sorry I could, you couldn't see it. Uh, we'll, we'll move on now to the next one. And there, there's the audience hall uh, he built. This is where he, he built this specially to, so that any subject who wished to go and have a look at him or put a, put a question to him or a petition um, could do so. Um, and he, um, he, this is where he received the Jesuits in the, in the picture you saw um, before him. The, the Jesuits were deeply impressed by, as we've seen, uh, um, by Akbar's royal bearing and presence. This prince is of a stature and of a type of countenance well fitted to his royal dignity, wrote Father Antonio, so that one could easily recognize, even at first glance, that he is the king. He has broad shoulders, somewhat bandy legs, well suited for horsemanship, and a light brown complexion. He carries his head bent forward towards his right shoulder. His forehead is broad and open, his eyes so bright and flashing that they seem like a sea shimmering in the sunlight. His eyelashes are very long. His eyebrows are not strongly marked. His nose is straight and small, though not insignificant. His nostrils are widely opened, as though in derision. Between the left nostril and the upper lip, there is a mole. A great observer of the Jesuits, you see. He had a limp in his left leg, which must have been from birth, for he had never been injured there. He was well built, neither too thin nor too stout. When he laughed, when he laughed his face almost became distorted. His expression was tranquil, serene and open full also of dignity, and when he is angry, he, he has awful man, majesty. And of course, um, they, they, uh, as I mentioned before, um, the, the clues, the Jesuits would have quickly picked up the clues on Akbar's heterodox approach to Islam um, from the, the very um, 
clothing that he wore, which, is, which was intended to play, pay tribute to all the religions of his subjects. Um, he, he, he didn't grow a beard, um, it, contrary to the Islamic injunction, injunction but sported a, a moustache like that of a Turkish youth who has not attained his manhood. And as I said, he completely ignored the uh, Islamic dre um, dress codes. Um, he never went any... He has acute insight, noted Father Antonio, and knows, shows much wise foresight in avoiding dangers and in seizing opportunities for carrying out his designs. He never went anywhere unarmed and was always accompanied, even in his own palace, by an armed bodyguard of some 20 men. Part of his acute insight was to stifle potential trouble before it could happen. His court was thronged with men of every type. Most of these were noblemen, he knew that it was better to have them at court than festering permanently in the provinces where they might ferment trouble. So each year he commanded each of them to join him for a certain period. When he left his palace, palace all these noblemen were obliged to accompany him, together with his extensive bodyguard in this spectacular pageant of colour, which added greatly to his wonderful majesty and the greatness of his royal court. As a great emperor... Akbar knew the value of keeping of public spectacle in keeping the populace happy. He put on polo matches, elephant, stag and cockfights, boxing matches and gladiatorial contests and the flights of tumbler pigeons. He is fond of strange birds, wrote Father Antonio, and indeed any novel object. And it does not seem to have occurred to the uh, Jesuits that Akbar might have considered them too to be novel objects. Um, we'll, we'll have a little look at Akbar hunting. If, if I've got everything. Uh, no, uh, yes, there he is. Sorry, you go back one. And there he is on, on, on his antelope. There he is on his horse uh, pursuing deer. And here he is again at the bottom. Um, so he, he was a, he, this um, royal royal practice of hunting was something he was very keen on him. He greeted the Jesuits with extraordinary warmth. On their return to their lodgings, he sent them plates full of gold mohas, gold coins. Next day, they, they presented him with the Bible. It was a pla uh, plantain Bible, a um, polyglot uh, Bible produced at the wonderful printing press of Christopher Plantin in Antwerp, um, and two sacred portraits that had been dispatched to Goa. He received them with great reverence, holding them until his arms ached. As a cradle Muslim, Akbar was familiar with the figures of Mary and Jesus. The Blessed Virgin is the only woman mentioned in the Quran, and one of its eight chapters is, or is named after her. The Emperor's own mother bore her Arabic name, Maryam. The virgin birth of Jesus betokened that he was the last and greatest of the prophets, but not as in Christian belief, divine. Sometime later, a nobleman, one of Akbar's relatives, asked the officer in charge of the royal furniture for the picture of the Virgin. He placed it in a bracket on the wall of the balcony at the side of the royal audience chamber, where the emperor was wont to show himself to the populace. Thinking it would please Akbar, he surrounded it with hangings of cloth and gold and embroidered linen. He was not mistaken, for the emperor was delighted. This gave great pleasure to the priests, who perceived that the non-Christians were worshipping and reverencing the picture and as if compelled by the unaided force of the truth, were not denying veneration to the image of her whom the morning stars extol and whose beauty amazes the sun and moon. I think the Jesuits were sort of very confident that they might convert Akbar, and they, they, they saw if they converted him, then 
that was it, they, they convert the whole empire. He assigned, they, he, um, of course, another thing they brought was the Western art to India, um, the three dimensional art, and Akbar was astonished by this. They were all uh, astonished by Western painting. So he assigned his court artists, but well, this is all wonderful, of course, but it's, it's two dimensional. So Akbar was deeply impressed by the, by the sense of perspective of Western painting. So he assigned his court artists to study painting with the Jesuits. They were ordered to attend catechism classes and to paint what they heard. Thus they recorded the pageantry of the liturgy and learnt European techniques of perspectives and light. He gave the Nazarene sages, as his vizier called them, permission to convert a room in the palace into a chapel. When they asked that this should be put in writing, he replied that this was unnecessary since his presence was living writing. So um, he... They were deeply gratified by the devotion shown by the um, Akbar and his officials, but they, they got a bit worried in case he got too carried away. Um, and so they, they had to explain that the religious images um, were, were not um, there to be venerated in themselves. Um, they said to him, Sire, we do not venerate the images for what they are, because we are well aware that they are merely paper or canvas with pigment, pigments. It is because of those whom they represent. Just as with your firmans or decrees, you do not touch them to your forehead because they are papers covered in ink, because you know that they contain your order and will. And as they stayed at the court, the Jesuits got to know its amazing routine. At dawn, when the cocks started to crow, a barbaric din was kept up for a full hour on trumpets, bugles, rattles, bells, and anything that was to hand. Everything that went on in the palace was regulated by a highly ingenious water clock. It consisted of brass vessels filled with water which filtered into a bronze cone that took exactly a quarter of an hour to fill through a small hole in the bottom. These were under the charge of orderlies whose duty it was to strike the time on bronze gongs. Fatiskor's Sikri was far from complete. New buildings were arising at astonishing speed. Agbar built a very very large um, amphitheater, 200 feet across, surrounded with colonnades in just three months, and circular baths, 300 feet in circumference, in six months. He did not care for the din that the building works would have engendered, so he had all parts of the structure fashioned elsewhere. They were then brought to the site and fitted together. He seems to have invented prefabrication. The priests were fascinated by this process and reflected on the biblical story of the building of the temple in Jerusalem, which states that no iron instruments of the builders, builders were heard. The examples of Fatipur Sikri made them realize that the story was not necessarily an account of the miraculous. Such was the enthusiasm of Akbar for his building works that he sometimes gave a hand with the stone quarrying himself. He amused himself by learning artisan trades and had built workshops near the palace which contained studios for the finer and more reputable arts such as painting, goldsmith work, tapestry weaving, carpentry, curtain making, and the manufacture of armaments. He found it relaxing to watch the artists at their work. He appointed around 20 Hindu chieftains to assist in the work of governing his empire and in control, controlling his royal household. They are devoted to him, wrote Father Antonio, and are very wise and reliable in conducting public business. They are always with him and are admitted to the innermost parts of the palace, which is a privilege not allowed even to his, Muslim, his Mongol nobles. When he was deliberating on important decisions, he would ask 
each of his counselors privately for his opinion, and then himself decide upon the course which seemed to be supported by the largest number and the most experienced. He even asked their advice on matters on which he had already made up his mind, saying, this is what I think should be done, do you agree? They replied, Salam, O king, whereupon he says, then let it be carried out. If, however, any of them do not agree with him, he listens patiently and sometimes even alters his own opinion. It need hardly be said um, that the esteemed and vital roles that Akbar bestowed on his Hindu counsellors was a cause of disquiet from the ulema or the um, Muslim scholars. Um, they were very distressed to see that he was giving um, Hindus such a prominent role in his, in his um, counselling and, and the governance of his empire. He was, Akbar was astute enough to grasp that economic control was tantamount to political control. When princes who had been driven from their dominions appealed to him for protection, he would furnish them with troops and resources on one condition, that they should employ only his weights and measures and money coined by himself. Part of the means of financing the governance of his great empire was born of the fact that Akbar was in an almost perpetual state of war, which gave him the spoils of kings and chieftains he had defeated. He seized their treasure and exacted great levies on his newly subdued subjects, many of whom were ruined by the financial burdens. The king, wrote Father Antonio, exacts enormous sums in tribute from the provinces of his empire, which is wonderfully rich and fertile, both for cultivation and pasture, and has a great trade in both exports and imports. He also derives much revenue from the hoarded fortunes of the great nobles, which by law and custom all come to the king on their owner's death. He engages in trading on his own account and thus increases his wealth to no small degree, for he eagerly exploits every possible source of profit. He allowed no bankers or money changers to operate in his empire. That was probably wise, again, in, in the view of the uh, present crisis. Only at, only, the royal treasuries could, could, only at the royal treasuries could gold, silver and copper coins be interchanged. This huge monetary market brought in enormous profits. Akbar's palace was approached through four great gates, each with its custodians. Namely, the chief executioner had a, was a custodian at one gate, the royal doorkeeper, the chief trainer of gladiators and the chief dispatch runner. Um, they were in charge of the four gates. The, the dispatch runners carried messages to and from all parts of the empire, which was vast. The empire included most of what became British India, as well as Afghanistan and parts of modern Iran. Some of them, some of his dispatch runners could run as far in a day as a horse ridden at full speed. It was rumoured that they had their livers removed in infancy in order to prevent shortness of breath. Don't know if that's true. <laughs> to strengthen their leg muscles, they trained in shoes made of lead, or they stood on each leg alternately and pressed their heels against their buttocks. Base-born prisoners were handed into the custody of the captain of the dispatch runners or the chief executioners, executioner, who kept them in irons but did not imprison them. Princes sentenced to imprisonment were sent to jail at Gwalior, where they rot away in chains and filth. Noble offenders were had, handed over to other nobles to determine their pun punishment. As in contemporary Europe, the punishment of malefactors could be cruelly severe. Those who are guilty of a ca capital prime, crime, wrote Father Antonio, are either crushed by elephants, impaled or hanged. The chief executioner was a figure who inspired some awe around the pa palace, and I think it's fairly obvious, um, I think we'd have all been rather awed by him, because he was equipped 
even in the palace and before the king, with many instruments of punishment, such as leather thongs, whips, bowstrings fitted with sharp spikes of copper, a smooth block of wood used for pounding the criminal's side or crushing to pieces his skull, and scourges in which are tied a number of small balls studded with sharp bronze nails. This latter weapon, I, I think, must be the one called by the ancients the scorpion. It must have been greatly to the relief of malefactors that no one was actually punished with these terrifying instruments, which seem more intended to inspire terror than for actual use. The same applied to the variety of chains, manacles, handcuffs, and other irons that the chief executioner hung on the gate which was in his charge. He was extremely strict, Akbar was extremely strict with officials who proved corrupt or incompetent. Hence, they all arrived to do as he desired. Muslim Sharia law implied, applied in most court cases, but the most important ones, including all those involving capital charges, were conducted before Akbar himself. In order to allow time for fair reflection, the guilty in cases that he had tried were not punished until he had given the order for the third time. He greeted ambassadors with, from other princes with great courtesy, unless they appeared to be insufficiently aware of his greatness and appeared to be attempting to manipulate him. Such was the case when envoys arrived from the Turkish Viceroy of Arabia who were sent to arrogantly persuade him to make war on Philip II, King of Spain. So ungraciously did they behave that the embassy vanished in a cloud of smoke. Akbar did not fear the consequences of put, putting the chief ambassador um, in irons and hand, banishing him for a long period to Lahore whilst his attendants made good their escape. He employed a permanent body of scribes, four or five on duty every day. Their task was to note all the orders he gave and the business he transacted. They took down everything he said with such speed that they appear carefully to catch and preserve his words before they can fall to the ground and be lost. They reminded Father Antonio of the chroniclers in the courts of the old Persian kings who were mentioned in the books of Daniel, Esdras and Esther. Akbar rarely drank wine, but this was not in obedience to Quranic injunctions against the use of alcohol. Um, his favourite drink was post, an alcoholic beverage made from the poppy, so it's probably um, an opiate as well. When he had drunk immoderately of it, he would sink back stupefied and shaking. Yet part, part of his uh, greatness was his ability to listen to criticism. When Father Rodolfo reproved him sharply for his licentious relations with women, instead of resenting the priest's audacity, he blushingly accused him, excused himself. The Jesuits were shocked at the Islamic practice of polygamy, which they regarded as little more um, than licensed prostitution. But in spite of his huge entourage of available women, Akbar was not gifted with great fecundity. When the priest with his court, he only had three sons, as Sheikh Salim Christi had, po uh, had prophesied, and two daughters. And um, here's his favourite wife, who is Mariam, same name as his mother, and um, she is a um, Rajput princess, and she was the mother of um, Ak Akbar's uh, eldest son, Jahangir, and she was the gra grandmother, she would have been the grandmother of Shah Jahan, the famous uh, builder of the Taj Mahal. Um, it, it may seem um, a contradiction, given Akbar's huge entourage of women, that he should have had a deep hatred of debauchery and adultery, but that is to miss the point. Women who had been debauched, however innocent they may have been, were almost certainly condemned by the prevalent social mores into prostitution. 
This explained why Akbar made a habit of asking prostitutes who had deprived them of their virginity. The severity with which he regarded those who had dishonored eligible maidens is demonstrated by his treatment of his chief trade commissioner. Although he was married, the man had violently debauched a well-bred Brahmin girl. The wretch was by the king remorselessly strangled. Although Muhammad did not bid, forbid unnatural crime, yet Akbar punished those who were guilty of such crimes by savage scourging with leather, leather throngs. So, um, such was the esteem that the, uh, Akbar developed for the Jesuits that he appointed Antonio Monserrati as tutor to his 11-year-old son, Murad. He had no objection to the fact that the Jesuit instructed the young prince to write in the name of God and of Jesus Christ, the true prophet and son of God at the head of each of his exercises. Akbar's ambivalent attitude towards Islam was causing great dissatisfaction amongst the ulema. And um, William Dalrymple, a writer I admire, quite frequently quotes Akbar as an example of Islamic tolerance. In fact, um, he's an example of religious tolerance. But um, in fact, um, his tolerance was actually denounced by the um, Muslim scholars and, um, and uh, holy men um, in his empire. As early as 1563, he abolished the religious taxes on non-Muslim subjects. Um, he instituted a number of measures that were in direct contravention of Sharia law. He gave permission for adherents of non-Islamic faiths to build places of worship, including the Jesuits, the Catholics, and decreed that Hindus who had been forcibly converted to Islam should be permitted to apostatize. The prescribed Islamic penalty for this is death. He also bad, forbade the forced conversion of non-Islamic slaves. The response of the Islamic establishment was to an oblique challenge to Akbar's authority. In uh, 1578, Abdul Nami, the chief imperial kazi, or magistrate, sentenced to death a Brahmin accused of insulting the name of <coughs> Muhammad. The sentence was carried out despite Akbar's express disapproval. It must have become clear to him that the ulema had to be curbed or his rule would become impotent. His, his response was twofold. He issued an imperial edict that declared himself as assuming the authority of the Khalifa, the Caliphate, uh, in succession to the Ottoman Sultanate. In other words, he was the living embodiment of um, is, is, is Islamic correctness on earth, which had possessed the, Islam the uh, Ottomans had possessed the title since 1517. He decided to take it from them. Um, and the Caliphs were, were the political successors of Muhammad, representing the focus of unity in the Muslim world. So he made that himself. As a corollary to this, the decree assumed for Akbar the power of arbitrating all disputes within Muslim scholarship and jurisprudence. He pressurized the imperial Qazi and other eminent Islamic judges into signing the document, so he assumed all religious authority. His second maneuver was to appeal beyond the Islamic establishment to his Hindu subjects, whose elevation to, as the Empress Croesus advisors was already causing friction within the scope of Muslim uh, Sharia law, non-Muslims were granted restricted rights. Christians and Jews, who were not exactly numerous in his d d domains, were also regarded as people of the book. Those of non-Old Testament-based religions, such as Hindus and Buddhists, who were as numerous in, uh, in Akbar's empire, um, were regarded as by Muslims as kufai or infidels. Unlike unlike the Jumani, the Christians and uh, Jews, they were predestined to the torments of hell unless they embraced Islam. 
all non-Muslims were obliged to pay a graduated property tax in 1579, the very year in which the Jesuit came to his court, Akbar abolished this. It was a move that added fire to the flames of Islamic dissatisfaction in his empire because he abolished the privileged role of religion within the religion within the empire and the supremacy of Sharia law. I said it sounds quite contemporary, doesn't it? To the consternation of the Luma, Akbar was drifting away from Islam. He ceased sponsoring caravans for those desiring to make the Hajj to Mecca. A famous Sunni ascetic, Sheikh Ahmad Sarandi, accused him of the sin of shirk or polytheism. It may well have been the Jesuits who brought this upon him because it was a charge levelled against the Christians that in worshipping Christ as divine, they were associating a lesser being with God. He was, not unfa- he was unfazed by this, but he was undoubtedly developing a messianic belief in his own destiny. It was rumoured that those entering his harem were obliged to declare, there is no God but Allah, and Akbar is his messenger. (laughs) Father Jerome Xavier, nephew of the famous saint, who led a mission to the imperial court in 1595, recorded the bizarre fact that he posed as a prophet, wishing it to be understood that he could work miracles, um, healing the sick through them drinking the water in which he had washed his feet. Although whether the invalids were coerced or desperate to do this goes unrecorded. He must have known that his actions would cause the kind of dissension that could lead to open rebellion. Indeed, he may well have taken these actions in order to bring about and reveal his enemies um, and bring them into the open. In 1580, Mullah Muhammad Yadi, the Shia Khazar or Islamic judge of Jampur, pronounced a fatwa that declared that Akbar had ceased to be a Muslim and the people should rise up against him. Akbar sent for him and, and the chief Khazai of Bengal, where there was also considerable rest, and had them put to death by drowning. By this time, there was already open rebellion in the eastern provinces of the Mughal Empire. In Bengal and Bihar, a group of officers, many of them Afghans, seized control. They com- proclaimed Mirza Muhammad Hakim as the legitimate emperor. He was Akbar's half-brother and governor of Kabul. These rival claimants properly invaded the Punjab. Akbar made preparations for war on two fronts. He sent his Hindu finance minister, Raja Mal, with a large force to, re- to reconquer the eastern provinces while ascending, assembling his own army outside Fatapur Sikri. He left his mother, Hamida Begum, in charge of the civilian administration while he embarked on a relentless campaign against his enemies. He rallied his large army outside the walls of Fatipur, where he erected the huge moving city that was intended to strike awe into the hearts of all who saw it and bear a visible testimony to his authority and might. His campaign headquarters was established in two great pavilions. When the army was on the march, he occupied one each night. Next morning, the other was carried on ahead for his occupancy that night so that he didn't have to wait wait for its erection. He selected a few of his principal wives to provide connubial pleasures in the months to come. His 38 cannons were always grouped in front of his quarters. They were designed for mobility to work in concert with the powerful cavalry and were therefore too small for siege work. To the right of Akbar's pavilion were the tents occupied by the 12-year-old Salim, Akbar's eldest son, and his retinue. To the left were the tents of Murad, the second son, and his retinue, which included his tutor, Father Antonio. Father Antonio was deeply impressed with the way the camp was organized. To avoid crowding and confusion, the different sections were divided into messes. Bazaars were established for the king, the princes, and the great nobles. They were very large and well-stocked with all sorts of 
with, with, with all sorts of provisions and merchandise so, so that they seemed to belong to some wealthy city instead of to a camp. Wherever the imperial camp was established, the same grand plan was followed, so that anyone who has spent a few days in camp knows his way about the bazaars as well as he does the streets of his own city. So we'll have the next slide. the end. And there, there you've got the pavilion, and here you've got Akbar's camp with all his soldiers, etc. Um, Father Antonio reckoned Akbar's army consisted of 50,000 cavalry, pretty terrifying sight, 500 war elephants, and an almost countless number of infantry. It re reflected the diverse character of his vast empire. The lightly armed and speedy horsemen of the Rajput warrior coast dismounted to fight while the Turkomans and Persians were at their most dangerous when they appeared to be in headlong flight. Father Antonio noted that while the Mughal army looked small in camp, it seemed enormous when on the march. It advanced in a crescent formation with Akbar at its head, extending in breadth over a mile and a half, covering the fields and filling the woods. Akbar eschewed the arid plains and the high mountain passes, which were places of potential ambush, directing his mighty force through the foothills, where streams provided ample supplies of fresh water. And we'll see Akbar's army on the march here. Incredible sight. Next slide, please, Helen. And there it is, there's the, there's the war elephants, there's Akbar, look, right up in the front, and here, here's the uh, horses, the cavalry, uh, fording probably the river Indus on his way into Afghanistan. Um, anyway, he carried uh, huge um, quantities of gold and silver with him, that's to purchase provisions on the way out of the countryside, and he paid everybody fairly, for the army was absolutely forbidden to loot. And, and once it had passed out of imperial territory, 300 scouts rode out for 18 miles in each direction to ensure the army's safe passage. Sappers and miners went ahead to level roads and build bridges of boats across rivers. So I think you may have guessed the outcome of Akbar's campaign with his 50,000 cavalry and 500 war elephants. Um, he rapidly, um, ra rapidly uh, crushed... Uh, the, the opposition to himself, but he forgave his brother, actually, for he, was, he could be a very forgiving man. Or the, obviously, the Jesuits um, didn't uh, convert Akbar, although they all seemed to be on the verge of doing so. So although Rodolfo Acquaviva must have counted his mission a failure, it certainly made an impact on Indian aesthetics. European visitors to the palace and tombs of the Mughal emperors in the, in the 17th century, were astonished to find them prominently adorned with paintings of Christ, the Virgin Mary, and Christian saints executed in the style of the late Renaissance. The Mughal artists were also working on miniature paintings, exquisite jewellery, and sculptures of the same subjects. Many of them were apparently being used as devotional objects. The absorptive power of India to absorb everything <coughs> that came along was fully demonstrated. In 1592, Akbar fulfilled the worst fears of the ulema by founding his own religion, the Din al-Ilah, faith of the divine. This was in essence a personality cult and dissolved quickly after his death. The goal of the soul was union with God and to this end it incorporated elements of Islamic Sufism, the, um, the devotional cults of Hinduism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism and Jainism. Anyone adopting the divine faith was not obliged to give up the practice of his own religion. The new religion possessed an ethical code which calls for almsgiving, the ending of cruelty to animals, permitting widows to remarry in contrary to Hindu practice, the prohibition of child marriage, and the outlawing of sati, the, um, the burning of um, wives on Hindu funeral powers. 
He also repeat, repealed the war, prescribing the death penalty for apostatizing Muslims, which was just as well, since he was technically one himself. That Islam sat lightly um, in, on, on Akbar's shoulders is demonstrated by his interest in figurative art and artists. <coughs> Muslim traditions did not allow for painting or sculpture. Those who make these pictures will be punished on the day of resurrection, goes one hadith or saying of the Prophet, and it will be said to them, make alive what you have created. But at Fatipar Sikri, which he built uh, so lavishly, his, his instinct, the, the Mughals were obviously, as you will know, um, they were originally um, nomadic tribesmen, and that's how they come into India in, in the first place. And his nomadic instincts asserted themselves, because in 1595 he abandoned uh, the spectacular cap capital he had uh, created with such consummate care, care, moving his seat of government to Lahore. Um, it, it is unlikely the uh, uh, architects of Fatipur Sikri would not have understood the nature of aquifers. It was said that it was the contemporary scholarship has said that it may have been because of the shortage of water he abandoned the city, um, but I think it's more likely that he reverted to the nomadic past of his ancestors, forever pushing towards new frontiers. He had been static too long. Francesco Xavier said that even if the prince failed to convert to Christianity, the mission could still be worthwhile. His patronage could reinforce it. Uh, reinforce it. A, a third miss mission was generously subsidised by Ak Akbar and proved highly effective. It reached Lahore in 1595, it was led by Father Je Jerome Xavier, who I mentioned. Memories of the first mission to Akbar were still fresh and influenced his decision to take on an unnamed Portuguese painter. He took a, an artist with him. Cultural fusion was the order of the hour. The Jesuits built chapels and architecture represented an ingenious combination of the Mughal and Catholic Renaissance style. style. They capitalised on the Indian love of spectacle by mounting lavish festivals and liturgies. Akbar regarded Father Jerome with the same admiration and affection as he had Rodrigo Aquavita. Wherever the court moved, the Catholic priest would move with it. He commissioned Father Jerome to translate the New Testament into Persian. Um, he instilled other writings with images of divine light, which are of great importance of Sufism. Um, although the Jesuits of the three missions were doubtless disappointed with the failure of their efforts to convert Akbar, their labours were not fruitless. In 1603, Akbar issued a firman which confirmed the right of Christians to preach, gain converts, and build churches across the empire. Thus, Father Manuel was able to embark upon the first mission to evangelize his subjects. According to an English visitor, subsequent English visitor, Edward Terry, the emperor's death in 1605 was self-inflicted. Akbar was wont upon taking any displeasure at any one of his grandees to give them pills to purge their souls from their bodies, and is said to have come by his death in the following manner. Intending to give one of these pills to a nobleman who had incurred his displeasure, and meaning to take, at the same time, a cordial pill himself, while he was cajoling the destined victim with flattering speeches, he by mistake took the poisoned pill himself and gave the cordial to the nobleman. This carried him off in a few days by a mortal flux of blood, and was finished off by looking at Akbar's tomb, so there, that's the great tomb that was built for him, and that's where he rests today. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. What, what was his achievement? Uh, what was Akbar's achievement? Well, I think you can deduce many of those yourself. Indeed, he, in many ways, he could be the far, regarded as the father of modern India. Um, 
the, he preceded the Raj, the British Raj, by many centuries. But the British Raj, in many ways, modelled its, its, its um, practices on what Akbar had achieved. Um, they too realised the uh, virtue of grand spectacle. They too had a homogenous army of, uh, of, of drawn from all the, uh, the the warrior tribes of of, of the Indian subcontinent. Um, they too um, eventually established um, a, a fair and uncorrupt administration. Um, which, of course, um, passed on to the newly independent India. So I think one can see a continuity between what Akbar did. It's a tenuous continuity in some ways, but one can actually see um, that he was, in some ways, uh, the father of modern India for all his cruelty, um, which was normal for the time, um, for for all his failings. um, I think we can award the title great to him. Thank you very much. Of course. I may not be able to answer them, but... <laughs> uh, do we have any questions? So do you say again the territorial extent? Yes. Uh, if you, if you uh, imagine um, modern, modern India, the modern... Uh, if, you, if you imagine the, the old British... the area of the British Raj, yeah. he would control the whole, the whole of that, um, apart from the southern, the southern tip of India and, uh, and Burma. Uh, he also would rule Afghanistan... And uh, the eastern part of the, the whole, whole of Afghanistan, yes, and the eastern part of um, Iraq, what we now call Iran, yeah. yes. So it's, it's a huge empire um, that he, you know, even I mean, if, if you think of it, rather like the Roman Empire, it's astonishing that anyone could exercise power and control over such a vast area. And he did it because he was a brilliant administrator. And he came into India from the east. Um, no, he, his, the, he, he, he inherited the Mughal Empire, but he extended it yeah. quite considerably. Um, but the, the Mughals had originally come out of Central Asia. They were a nomadic tribes, but they'd established themselves um, as uh, virtual rulers, emperors of India. And um, rather like in the medieval fashion in Europe, um, there were independent rulers who, who were subject to them, who um, recognised their suzerainty over the whole um, thing. The the marvellous book um, by William Dalrymple I mentioned, um, The the Last Emperor, I think uh, that's about the very final one at the time of the Indian Mutiny, shows that after after the mid-17th century, um, the Mughal power declined. It was impossible to maintain such power. And by the time of the last emperor, rather like the last emperor of China, uh, the Mughal emperor's remit um, or, or rule didn't extend beyond his own front gate, you know, but he still had all the trappings of, uh, of a great emperor. Where, where is he buried? Where is that? I, I think that's in Lahore, June. You, 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 it's a canter. It's just outside Agra. Yes. Yes. He, yes. So just, uh, is, is it in splendid isolation like that, or is it now surrounded by... June, you've probably been there? No, it, it is in, in splendid uh, yes. isolation. It's, yes. Uh, um, they, they haven't built around it, no, basically. Yes. June should have given this lecture, no, wouldn't no, we? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? You yes. mentioned Sorry. that um, modern India is devoid of corruption. No, I didn't say that, no. no, I, didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't say that about modern Britain, let alone... <laughs> but it was modern, though. Uh, what I'm saying is, I, I probably was pushing things too far, I will confess. Uh, but I, I can see, it, however tenuous, a connection, um, a continuity between Akbar 
um, through to the British Raj, through to modern India. And I wouldn't push the analogy too far, but there is a kind of um, continuity there. Just, yes, yes, my friend. Just out of curiosity, can you repeat the question of that gentleman? Please? Yes, he, well, he, he, he was wondering whether... Um, I, well, you, you repeat it, sir, I, because it was, you actually were doubting that. I said it wasn't corrupt. Modern India isn't corrupt, weren't you? Uh, well, I wasn't... Never anything. Yes? Sorry? What, what was your question? Because I, I maybe answered a different question. Because the gentleman at the back wants to know what you asked. He didn't hear oh, it. Right, yeah. I yes. No, I, I, I imagine the British India was as devoid of corruption as you could possibly get in that yes. part of the world. It didn't quite pass on to modern India. Um, well, it depends what you call British India. British rule in India in the 18th century, and again, a book of William Dalrymple I'd recommend, uh, which is The White Mobiles, was astonishingly corrupt. Um, the people there who were just... They, they went to India for the sole purpose of making huge fortunes. I mean, Clive of India is a, an example of that. And, um, there was... Uh, and um, the, the, I think India was brought... In, into, into on the r right track under the British rule um, after the Indian Mutiny when, uh, in fact, uh, the, the rule of the Indian... Because the British actually didn't rule India until after the Indian Mutiny. It was ruled by the East India Company. Or, and even then, they didn't know, rule most of India. It was, it was governed by princes in treaty with the British Crown. But I think it's only after the Indian Mutiny that you start to get the establishment of a, a, a civil administration that... Uh, obviously not in every way, but in many ways was, was a, was a ra remarkable example of uh, generally uncorrupt um, administration. But it, previously it had been astonishingly corrupt. I mean, um, the, the British, British arriving in India just as, assumed local... Uh, India absorbed them. India, as I've said, has this wonderful capacity to absorb every passing civilization, take on what it needs, and eventually they, they'll, they go when... Um, what is left is uh, is incorporated. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. I've always been told that flat was abandoned because of the lack of fresh water. Yeah. You're saying that's not true. I'm I'm not saying it's not true. I'm, it's a little speculation on my part um, that that it, that in fact um, Akbar what just wanted to move on. You know, he, he'd done this. And I'm maybe romanticising a bit, but I'm looking into his nomadic origins uh, as a mogul. His continuous... I mean, he was continuously active, you know, like this continuous war, this never-ending war that he, was, that he would be fighting. Um, and the purpose of the never-ending war was to keep his sub, uh, the, the subject princes uh, cowed, if you see what I mean. And it, in that sense, it was an arm of diplomacy. Um, it, there is a strong chance that there were a shortage of water, but as I point out, his architects would have actually... The, the people who built that were pretty clever and would have known um, all about uh, aquifers and the, um, the creation of water supplies. Um, so I think it may be a bit of both, but I think he was ready to abandon it by 1595. Yes. Um, is it known why he kept so many elephants? Were they... Uh uh, well, the, he had a thousand and five hundred were in his army. Um, I, I think um, it, the, the, they were the equivalent of um, of a kind of Mercedes Benz or a Rolls Royce or something like this. They, they were they were there to impress, but they were also um, great instruments of war. You know, this, they were they were the equivalent of the of, of the Sherman tank. Yeah. 
at the time, I think, and I think that's, he, he, they, they were there to demonstrate um, his majesty and power, that, that um, he, he had such a huge force of elephants. Yes? Me? Yes? Uh, okay. Thank you. Uh, uh, I have two questions, actually. One of them is, I was just comparing Sadhuhan's uh, Taj Mahal yes. and Akbar's, this kind of structures. Uh, what, was, what was the difference between them? Is it uh, uh, he came, he, he acquired the knowledge, Akbar and Salim, all those people have um, uh, accumulated and then uh, passed on to uh, Sadhuhan, or is different uh, social environment? Um, I think there's a continuity. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm an authority on that, but um, I, I think uh, there's a tradition of gr great building, again, to impress. And again, you've got a continuity with the British building, um, bu building New Delhi um, towards the end of their rule. But again, it's, it's to impress with the majesty and power of government. But in fact, the Taj Mahal is a, is a holy place, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's built for, uh, as a tomb for his wife. It's a, it's, it's a place... Uh, but um, I think there is a, the idea of, of, of great building. I mean, there's, there's, there's the Red Fort in Agra. I think that's Akbar, isn't it? Akbar built the famous Red Fort in Agra. So you impress. I mean, if, if you go... What's, there's a place in Italy where... Uh, is it Perugia? I can't remember. Where um, the, every nobleman tried to build... A, it's a bit like New York in the, in the, in the interwar area. Every nobleman attempted to build a taller tower than the next nobleman. Now, some of them are still there. Sorry? So, yeah, that's right, yes. Um, and I think there's that element, you know, you demonstrate your power and your wealth and your importance, your majesty, by building something absolutely magnificent um, to, imp to, well, to impress the subjects. And second question? Uh, yeah, second question is more, possibly I didn't uh, hear you very well, I suppose. You were comparing polygamy to prostitution. No, 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 I wasn't. That's was quite the opposite. Um, the, the Jesuits regarded it as a form of prostitution. Um, that I was quoting the Jesuits, um, that the, um, Akbar was very concerned about uh, the protection of women, as, uh, as I said, um, and he, 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 would, he, he believed in polygamy, he had a large number of wives and an even bigger number of concubines, although, as I said, he wasn't all that fecund. You know, he only had about, out of all these wives, he only produced about six or seven children. Um, but... Um, the, the point I was making, and what he felt was, you see, that if, if, uh, within the structures of civil law, um, marriage, polygamy, or whatever, um, w gave protection to women because it gave them rights, it gave them protection against exploitation and all this kind of thing. Um, he regarded um, debauching women um, as, as, a, as a, a terrible thing to do. And the reason for that is that these women who have been debauched... Um, maidens who had been debauched became ineligible for marriage and they had no alternative but to go into prostitution. So he, he had took a very severe view of um, what we might call sexual hanky-panky or whatever you'd like to call it. You know, he, 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 was, he was very severe, as I said about his minister, his chief treasurer, who'd done that and he, he strangled him personally. So he, he wasn't a nice chap to, to, to cross, really. Right. That's all. Well, thank you for a most interesting talk. I can't have a feeling that Iran would do well to have an Akbar at the moment. Maybe they'll get one. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, June. Thank you all. Thank you.